What did Jesus have to say about guns? Did he say anything? Is there anything in the Bible about firearms or gun control? We'll take a look at that today, along with some serious Christian thought behind the Second Amendment. In the newsfeed this week, we'll talk about the conviction of five pro-life activists and NASCAR's discrimination of white people. That's right. And we'll also talk about the results of Knoxville's primary election for mayor, three council seats, and a judgeship. I'm Blake Watson, and this is We the Free. The majority of you are coffee drinkers, and maybe some of you fancy yourselves coffee connoisseurs. Well, whether you're someone who likes to down a quick cup to get a caffeine dose, or you just enjoy the art of crafting an excellent cup of joe, you've got to give my friends at Blackout Coffee a shot. They've got bags of ground or whole bean coffee or single serve pods. They've got many different blends, flavors, and roasts. My personal favorite is called Morning Reaper. It's one of their medium roasts. Use my code BLAKE23 for 20% off. That's B-L-A-K-E-2-3 for a discount and level up your morning cup with blackout coffee. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go out and evangelize the house of Israel, he says. He tells them to preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also says to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, all those things. Now, the next part is interesting, and it, it might bother those of you who tend to overpack before a trip. He says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Like, don't take any money. Or a bag for your journey, or even two coats, or sandals, or a staff. In other words, don't take anything except for what you're wearing right now. Luke recorded these instructions a little differently. He said, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, he says, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Now, later on, back in Matthew's account of that story, he quotes Jesus in saying, Behold, I send you out, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves. In other words, it's going to be dangerous out there for them. So Jesus tells them to be as smart or as wise as a snake, and yet also to be as innocent or pure as a dove. He even describes them as sheep surrounded by wolves, practically telling them they would be attacked. There's a lot of animal metaphors there, but Jesus is telling them they need to be careful. That's, that's the elusive, defensive snake part of the description, while also refraining from retaliation or being combative like that of a dove. So, if you're keeping track of everything so far, these disciples were to take nothing with them, and though they're supposed to try to avoid physical threats, Whenever they face attacks, they should not attack back. I mean, if you were in their sandals, would you still go? 
What, what was the point of all these prohibitions? Why couldn't they pack like normal for their journey? Why couldn't they defend themselves or better yet, take some kind of some form of defense like a, you know, a club or a sword of sorts? I don't know about you. I, I think I could make it on this trip without the extra clothes, but going without the money and, and also being instructed to not utilize self-defense, um, that's what I would have a hard time with. I, I want to know what you think in the comments. But again, why weren't they allowed to utilize these normal things? Much later on in Luke's Gospel, it's the night before Jesus' death. It's his last night with them. There are there's several moments recorded from this night, but Jesus has just told them that he's going to be leaving them. It's time for him to go. And after, after they celebrate the Last Supper, the Passover meal, Jesus shares this with them. And the disciples are upset about this, especially Peter. So then Jesus starts to tell them some things to prepare them for what's coming next, like in his absence, while he's gone. John's gospel includes Jesus telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But Luke records this interaction. Jesus says to them, When I sent you without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. Okay, so Jesus is showing them, and, and He's showing us here, that that reason for those uh, prohibitions was for them to learn dependence on His providence. They didn't lack anything. He didn't want them to take anything on their trip, including money and clothing, and He didn't want them being physically combative or defensive because, because He would provide them everything they would need. They didn't lack anything. But here, on the eve of His death and His crucifixion, as He's preparing them for His departure, He says this next, But now, but now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And get this, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. They respond, Look, Lord, there's two swords here. And He says to them, It is enough. Or, that's enough of this. In fact, in that day and area, uh, thefts and robberies were pretty common, and, and so, so was it a common practice that many people carried these short blades, almost like knives. Now, whereas before, Jesus was sovereignly meeting their needs in money and clothing and protection, here He's saying they must provide for their own support and protection. He even says that if they don't have a sword, which was, again, like a short dagger-like weapon, almost like a knife, that they should sell or trade some of their clothing to buy some. It was that important. Now, that was the mentality 2,000 years ago, even of Jesus. But there were many ways that people could die, whether that be by, you know, natural causes, some sort of disease, old age, or, you know, some by sort of capital punishment. That's what Jesus died from. But of these causes of death and mortality, none of them were any sort of gun or firearm, because, of course, guns wouldn't really be invented for another 1,300 years or so in the 13th century, unless, of course, you count 
what the Chinese created in the 10th century. Yes, guns are that old, but they're not old enough to be found within the eternal pages of Scripture. But here we are in the 21st century. Guns are clearly a much debated topic these days, although the media and most liberals are very picky and choosy about which cases and incidents they utilize to promote either the stronger regulation of firearms or just the outright abolition of the Second Amendment. At least once a month now, we're seeing or hearing headline news stories about a tragic shooting, or as they say, a mass shooting where the gunman has slaughtered numerous individuals, which usually includes the shooter taking their own life in the end. Now, speaking of causes of death in the first century, what would you say are the top 10 causes of death in the United States? And, and where in that do you think homicides would rank? Like, in relation to gun deaths. Now, I already know what's happening in most of your heads. For the conservatives watching, I think I know what you're guessing, and for the liberals, I think I know exactly what you're thinking. But let's just start with number 10. 10th place is chronic liver disease. Okay. Then in ninth place, we have kidney disease. Those are both around 50 to 60,000 deaths each last year in 2022. And in eighth place, eighth place gives us diabetes with over 100,000 deaths last year. Alzheimer's disease is in seventh place with around 115,000 deaths. Again, this is just in 2022. Then respiratory disease is sixth with close to 150,000 deaths. So the first half of the leading causes of death so far have been diseases that are difficult to deal with and, and even combat, hardly preventable. Strokes are the fifth leading cause of death in 2022 with nearly 160,000 deaths. Uh, fourth place is COVID-19 with about 180,000 deaths. Again, this is just in 2022. And who knows if they're still padding those numbers because if you remember, uh, they would mark anyone as a COVID death if they had COVID when they died, not necessarily if they died from COVID, comorbidities. But let's just go along with it. Here's the top three causes of death from last year. In third place, with about 215,000 deaths, are unintentional injuries. So basically accidental deaths, you know, like somebody falling or a car accident, etc. Now, there's a massive jump in the second leading cause of death. With over 600,000 deaths last year, cancer, in its various forms, took the lives of so many. 600,000. Some of these, uh, you can go through treatment to deal with it. Some forms are preventable, you know, like staying away from things that are carcinogenic. But obviously, cancer is a monster which consumes the lives of so many, especially if you think about this 600,000 number only being in the United States just this past year. And finally, the leading cause of death in the United States in 2022, claiming the lives of over 700,000 people, is gun violence. No, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's heart disease. Now, heart disease for many is a genetic issue. It's a genetic problem. I know a few people like that. But for many that suffer from this problem, 
It's a problem of their own making. In fact, most of these things on the list are non-preventable, while heart disease or death from such is largely preventable. Here are the four things the CDC recommends for treating heart diseases. First, they say choose healthy food and drinks. Then they say keep a healthy weight. And then they say get regular physical activity. And finally, don't smoke. They also recommend get regular physical activity to help you maintain a healthy weight and lower your blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels. Now, with such alarming numbers of deaths related to heart disease, again, it's over 700,000 just last year, where is the public outcry for putting an end to this madness? Where, where's the media running relentless headlines to force the limitations of, of junk food consumption? Where are the politicians campaigning for a crackdown on fast food restaurants? Where are the protests over couch potatoing? Why aren't we forcing people into the gym or tracking their progress or usage of the treadmill? Where are all the lobbyists to block the sale of cigarettes, in fact, outright banning them? Where are the federal regulations limiting work hours and social media usage? What? Do we not see any of this? Well, why not? With such a leading cause of death being so preventable, why can't we take drastic measures to prevent it? After all, we, we would be saving lives. And, and speaking of lives, the CDC surely won't include on their top 10 table the number of abortions because they don't view the baby person as a person. They view the baby as an it that doesn't classify as a death. But if they did, abortion would have been listed as the second leading cause of death um, in 2020 with over 600,000 abortions. Over 600,000 abortions in the United States alone. But that's another conversation for a different day or just later today. I mentioned COVID-19 as being the fourth leading cause of death last year. And as I'm sure you all remember and surely won't forget, the government, most states, and a lot of businesses did everything they could, as forcefully as they could, to prevent COVID deaths. So why not have the same heavy-handedness or iron-fistedness against a killer that claims the lives of almost four times as many people? Well, of course, there is no outrage over this because people prefer to eat what they want and be as lazy and as careless as they want or work as much as they want or be as stressed as they want. It's their freedom to eat themselves to death. So who's going to get in their way? Now, let's consider gun deaths. The CDC reports there were 48,117 lives lost to gun, quote-unquote, violence in 2022. If that's correct, then gun deaths would probably sit just below liver disease at maybe 11th or 12th place. But here's the chart from Johns Hopkins. It shouldn't all be classified as violence because most of these gun deaths, in fact, 56% of them are from suicides. 40% of them are homicides. Now, the chart also shows down at the bottom that 649 lives were lost 
to legal intervention, which is another way of saying law enforcement shootings, that's 1.3%. Again, that's another conversation for a different day. So let's consider these, these top two things. Suicidal deaths by guns can be ruled out of this conversation because a person that wishes to take their life doesn't require a firearm to do it. And if you're saying that it's like self-violence, then it's also self-violence to hit the drive-through too much or smoke too many cigarettes or to exert minimal physical effort to get by. So if we remove the gun deaths associated with suicide, that means there are over 19,000 gun deaths last year just in, the, just in the United States. I don't know where we would rank that amongst everything else, but I, I bring up all of these statistics associated with death because we're experiencing nowadays a near drumbeat rhythm for calls for government action against firearms when the leading cause of death killed almost 37 times, 37 times the number, the number of Americans. So why is the media so gung-ho about firearm regulation? Why are liberals so adamant about societal gun removal? Now, I've said this before, but as Christians, we value life, life more than any other person does. From the womb to the tomb, from tiny to 90, as we say at my church, we want to protect life from the person being a fetus to the person being elderly. When life is lost, we mourn because God mourns over such things. It doesn't matter if it's from heart disease or armed homicide. God grieves over such awfulness, therefore we do as well. When there's a shooting that claims the lives of black people in a grocery store in Florida, we mourn that loss of life. When there's a shooting of six people in a Christian school in Nashville, we mourn that loss of life as well. We mourn the lives lost when it's those three at the Florida Publix, or when it's the over 400 lives lost just in the city of Chicago just this year. But you don't hear about those, do you? So why is it that a genuine Christian should be pro-Second Amendment and opposed to anything that opposes what the framers of the Constitution and the ratifiers of the amendments inscribed 232 years ago? Well, let's consider once again what the Founding Fathers were combating, what they were trying to establish and prevent, and what they believed. First of all, a quick reading of the Declaration of Independence will show you that the United States would be completely opposed to tyranny. Jefferson wrote, When a long train of abuses and usurpations evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. The history 
of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. The Declaration goes on to list every grievance they had with King George, which one of the final grievances was this one. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. The preamble of the Constitution declares, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, those that would come after us. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In other words, they sought to establish a country based on this, this foremost law, the U.S. Constitution, which would ensure a place completely opposite of the tyranny they just fought against, that they just defeated, and, and that they declared their independence from. How would they ensure all these things? Justice, uh, domestic tranquility, common defense, uh, general welfare, and the blessings of liberty. Well, they would go on to list it in the seven articles. Then eventually, in 27 total amendments, the second of which is highly discussed today. It reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Whoa, now, see, Blake, it's, it's talking about the armed forces. That's not talking about citizens. It's talking about uh, the army and, and maybe even the police. Well, then why does it say this next? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. So, if you ask the question, why was the Second Amendment created? Why, like, why did they write that? It was added to our Constitution because a well-armed citizenry couldn't be trifled with. The framers sought to establish a land of liberty, one in which the citizens would be a free people, not a slew of subjects under the authoritarian rule of a tyrant king or ruler. And don't give me this argument about muskets and the progression of weapons technology. These were some of the most brilliant men to ever live. You think they didn't have the foresight for such advancements? They absolutely did. But more importantly, they understood the nature of humanity more than we do today. They knew that men are inherently evil. That authority and power corrupts people. That rules in the hands of the wrong person would hurt, not help. The population. So they put this brilliant system in place that has ensured our republic to last as long as it has. Jesus, being God in the flesh, obviously knew the natural intentions of man. He knows us better than we know ourselves. 
He knows better than the founders that men are naturally prone to evil, not good. This is why on the night before his, his death, before his crucifixion, he told the disciples to arm themselves. You must be able to defend your life if necessary. In fact, self-defense was the primary factor in that case and in the case of the Second Amendment. Some Christians wish to point to a few passages to make a case against firearms, like Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, which says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The idea there is that loving your enemy is actually the best way to defeat them. But what if they don't care about your food or drink? What if they're trying to stab you or shoot you or run you over with their car? Obviously, Solomon wasn't in any great danger there when he wrote that. Another passage is in Matthew 5, 38 through 39, in which Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In verse 38, Jesus is referencing the historic and, and more uh, current form in his day of reciprocal justice. Now, an individual would never carry out such acts of punishment because uh, doing so would be like revenge, vengeful. And, and God is, is not a fan of people getting even. Just look at Deuteronomy 32, 35. So this speaks to retaliation, which is different from self-defense. The former is an attack in return of an attack. The latter is the prevention of an attack. Another argument is made from Romans 12, 17 through 21, which, in fact, I'm going to use inside out to favor sound self-defense. Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But, and here he's quoting, If your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. He's quoting Solomon. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, on this same note, some like to use Peter's actions in the garden on that same night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, to make their case. Jesus had just given them these instructions about buying a sword, and they've made their way to the garden. Jesus is praying. Then the mob shows up to arrest Jesus, and Peter cuts off the ear of one of the arresting guards. Matthew's gospel says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I can't appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? 
So Peter's worst offense there was attempting to prevent the will of God from being carried out. Jesus had to be arrested. Peter stupidly cut off the ear of what would be, like in modern times, a police officer. So there was no respect for authority there. But finally, this wasn't self-defense. It wasn't even a good defense of Jesus' life either. Peter lashed out and attacked a, a horde of arresting officers when they were outnumbered and surely outarmed. And worse, Jesus was just talking to them. Like nobody was trying to murder Jesus on the spot. So Peter messed up and Jesus made that clear. So obviously there, there is clear from scripture that there must be sound judgment and wisdom when it comes to utilizing self-defense. After all, Jesus told them to be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. If there's one thing Christians understand, it's that people are naturally evil in this fallen world. A gun is merely the tool in the hands of an evil person whenever it's used for evil deeds. But so is a regulation in the hands of a tyrant. The founders understood this very thing. That's why the Second Amendment is the only amendment to the Constitution, which practically has bolded the words, shall not be infringed. Therefore, until we're face to face with Jesus, we're responsible to ourselves to make sure we're fed and supplied. And if we're without protective arms, you better sell your cloak to have one. Now, let's get to the news feed. I hope you all had a good Labor Day weekend. My family and I had a good time on the lake with some friends after some much needed time off. We've just moved into our new home after building for about a year. And uh, building your own place is no joke, especially when you've got two kids and we've each got full-time jobs. Uh, it's important to remember to rest every week, trust me. So I hope that you all had some time off. Now, in the national spotlight this past week, uh, the Daily Wire is the only one uh, the only outlet reporting on the conviction of five pro-life activists. They say, The Biden Department of Justice successfully swayed a jury on Tuesday to convict five pro-life activists for demonstrating at a controversial abortion clinic, which the DOJ argued violated the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, also known as the FACE Act. What is the FACE Act? Well, as the article just said, it's the freedom of access to clinic entrances. Specifically, Justice.gov defines the FACE Act as the federal government may bring criminal charges under the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, or FACE, which prohibits threats of force, obstruction, and property damage intended to interfere with reproductive health care services or other federal criminal statutes where arson, firearms, and threats were also used. The FACE Act is not about abortions. The state protects all patients, providers, and facilities that provide reproductive health services, including pro-life pregnancy counseling services and other pregnancy support facility uh, providing reproductive health care. 
Now, I think it's an oxymoron to claim that abortions are reproductive health care. They're not caring for anyone's health. In fact, they're conducting murder. They act like it's the removal of a pancreas or a kidney. It's not health care when you're literally destroying the health of someone. But you notice that the act is supposed to protect both abortion clinics and pro-life or pregnancy centers. The acronym's E stands for entrances because the federal crime would be blocking the entrance to these facilities or preventing people from entering. That explains the use of the word obstruction, but it also entails property damage. Anything that would obstruct entrance or damage the facility, rendering it useless to its services, whether that be baby murder or pregnancy care and counseling. Now, here's what happened. The article says, Conservatives quickly expressed outrage over the case, especially since the activists, Lauren Handy, 28, John Henshaw, 67, Heather Adoni, 61, William Goodman, 52, and Herb Garrity, 25, face 11 years behind bars and were thrown in jail to await their sentences. So they're in prison. They've been in prison since 2020. The activists also each face a $350,000 fine. So what exactly happened? They say the activists engaged in a sit-in demonstration at the D.C.-based Washington Surgery Clinic late-term abortion facility in October 2020. According to reporting from CBN, the demonstrators sang songs, prayed, locked arms in front of the facility's staff entrance, and attached themselves with ropes and chains to block doors inside the building in an effort to, quote, delay the murder of kids, end quote, the activists said. So pro-life activists are usually at these murder clinics to plead with the mothers to not follow through. They want to talk them out of it. You may have seen pro-lifers set up with large posters depicting the, the evils of abortion, like showing the bodies of aborted babies and, and dismembered body parts. But in this case, as you just heard, the activists were singing and praying, which there's no problem there, but blocking admittance to the building is what violated the act. For Christians, uh, there are two thoughts here. First, we want to do everything we can to prevent the murder of innocent children. But secondly, as Christians, we're to abide by the laws of the land. Blocking the, the building is admirable, but when the other side sees that as an obstruction to, quote, vital health care, they take it as a serious crime. So that's what has happened here. The article adds, The surgery clinic is particularly controversial due to recent undercover footage allegedly showing suspect practices by staffers, including making women take Xanax before meeting with an abortionist and giving final consent. Now this is the undercover video, which shows a few un unbelievable things. There's nothing graphic in this at all but I want you to see the murder clinic in question. I'm just feeling very self-conscious because I feel like you guys probably don't see a lot of people as far along as I am, except for, for like medical emergencies. And no, not at all. I mean, I know that it's... Oh, yeah. Nah, you're fine. Yeah, it's not, 
It's it's not like the odd one out. Mm-hmm. No, you're you're fine. Yeah. yeah, we see a lot of people as far further than you. Can you tell me a little bit more about like the the removal process? Because she said it's not labor. No, you don't go through labor. Okay. Um. Well, I'll tell you what. You can ask the doctor that specific question. Would that makes sense. It? He would know. Yeah, he would know because he's the one doing it. So right. He'd be able to explain. Actually, it to that you. would make me. F I would feel very. I would be glad to be able to talk to him directly yeah. since he would know. Yeah. She said that. Um, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. It's okay. The tissues right there. Thank you. She said that. Um, she won't feel anything. No. It, Are you fetus, sure? Yes. The fetus is completely comfortable. We do it as humanely as possible. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Um, will she already be? No, we oh. we don't do the. A lot of people do the injection through the heart and all that. We don't do that here. Okay. We don't do I that didn't here. even know. Okay. Yeah. So. So she'll be well. She'll be alive when you go to sleep, but she will definitely have passed before he does anything. So that's what I was wondering. So mm -hmm. so, I'm sorry. So for um, once he's actually doing a removal, she's all. She's, she's already. It's just remains. Yes. At that point. Exactly. Exactly already gone okay and then um the remains are just like incinerated or yeah okay it goes to medical waste okay so i just need your initials in the highlighted area that just says we talked about it this is the possibility of yeah this is the possibility of labor basically yeah spontaneous abortion i'm sorry that that means uh you may go into premature labor and deliver the fetus in your hotel you guys have like, this is what you do. You have experience this far along. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah, it's not just at, like, 22 or 18 or something. No, no. We okay. specialize in this far along. What are these? These are the same ones I just gave you in the envelope. Okay. So the two big blue ones are the doxycycline. That's your antibiotic. Okay. The two white ones are the acetaminophen, your pain medicine. And then the two blue ones are the xanax those guys are just going to help relax you um is it okay if i take these after i talk to the doctor uh well unfortunately they need to be in your system in order for Before the doctor he can to do, do the anything. procedure okay just because it's gonna but the pain medicine's gonna keep you comfortable does xanax affect like the fetus no not the fetus uh -huh. um just my clarity of thinking it shouldn't. I mean, you might be a little sleepy, but um, yeah. Other than that, I would. I would really. I don't mind if I have to stay longer. I'd really rather talk to him first. Uh, is that not? Is that not usually how you guys do it? Yeah, that's unfortunately. Like I said, um, we have to make sure that that's in your system before you talk to the doctor. He's not going to be able to speak with you until he is ready to do it. Okay. And you're actually pants off in the... This is the abortion clinic where the five pro-life activists broke the law obstructing entrance. The undercover woman, God bless her, is posing to be 28 weeks pregnant, which apparently happens a lot. And just for understanding, at, at 28 weeks, a baby is starting to hear and see things uh, they're positioning themselves head down because this is the final trimester. Uh, this clinic apparently specializes in murder of babies this far along. 
Notice how the nurse never refers to the child as a human being. She only refers to the baby girl as a fetus. And that she'll be completely comfortable whenever they extract her dismembered body parts from the womb because they've bled the child out by cutting its umbilical cord. She says that's the humane way of dealing with it. When in actuality and reality, it's the most opposite thing from humane. It's pure evil. And to make it even more grotesque, we learn that the baby girl's remains are just thrown into a medical waste bin or a trash can to be burned. I mean, I, I literally feel like I'm describing a death cult, and, and I probably am. But did you notice how they referred to miscarriages as spontaneous abortions? As if to say that when a baby dies in the womb, it's the same thing as an abortion? Also, did you notice when she was asking, when the, when the undercover uh, woman was asking about the procedure, the nurse said, she'll be alive when you go to sleep. What does that tell you? They know it's a living person, and yet they proceed with these murders to perpetuate the death cult and the business of genocide. Now, the article made reference to what happens at the end of the video where the nurse is making her take two Xanax before she can meet with the abortionist, which is obviously medical manipulation. I would call it malpractice, like drugging someone up so they have no reservations or qualms about killing their child. The article goes on to say, Attorneys at Thomas More Society filed an emergency motion Wednesday with the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia asking the court to reconsider its order detaining uh, Handy, one of the girls that was uh, a pro-life activist, while she awaits sentencing. The attorneys uh, maintain Handy and the other activists were peacefully demonstrating which is a protected right. Well, they're correct that it is a protected right, but they also say this. Thomas More said, Miss Handy was there to prevent these horrific uh, live abortions, which does not violate the FACE Act. End quote. Now, again, it's absolutely admirable what these five people did, but they did violate that act by blocking the entrance with a human chain of people linking arms to prevent mothers and, and staff from coming into the building. That's literally half of what the FACE Act is about. Thomas More also said, She has become a victim, Handy has, of the merciless drive-by Biden's Department of Justice to prosecute those who are trying to protect pre-born human beings. To add to that injustice, she was incarcerated when the true violence continues to be committed against innocent children. Now, with that, I agree. We've talked numerous times on this show about the imbalance of justice under this regime. They have thrown into prison and are facing uh, fines and prison time, these people, but the death cult gets off scot-free. Not to mention the destructive wake of Black Lives Matter and also uh, the, the pro-death clans attacking pregnancy centers since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think there's been something like 60 attacks. So the, the imbalance of justice must stop. If there is to be any justice at all, 
abortion needs to be nationally criminalized, equivalent to homicide. And in the meantime, pro-lifers have to minister to these women in just fashion. In other national news, are there any national sports leagues that haven't been plagued by liberalism and wokeness? I mean, seriously, if, if there are any, please let me know, and, and I'm, I'm going to become an immediate fan. Now, there's a few sports that you could have guessed wokeness wouldn't touch, but we've only been disappointed in the past few years. For example, the National Hockey League was plagued by the Rainbow Club. Of course, you know what's happened with the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB. But I didn't expect NASCAR to do the same. Yes, there have been some instances of racial wokeness over the years, but NASCAR recently showed their true colors. Um, intentionally or not, in their applications for these certain internships. The program is called Drive for Diversity. And here's how it's described on NASCAR's website. Each year, the NASCAR Drive for Diversity Development Program seeks to obtain the highest quality of applicants representing diverse backgrounds and develop them into, into successful NASCAR drivers. Now, as with any job, they list the following requirements. Be a female or a member of one or more of the following ethnic minority classifications. American Indian, Alaskan Native or of Native Indigenous descent, Asian or Pacific Islander, Black or African American, Latino or Hispanic. Now since uh, 1866 and the Civil Rights Act, it's been illegal to discriminate against anyone for anything on the basis of their eth ethnicity or skin color or gender. So NASCAR is openly committing a federal crime by discriminating against the only ethnicity that isn't on this list, and, and surely the largest demographic of the NASCAR fan base, white people. Now, I live in Tennessee, and I know there are a lot of NASCAR fans here, especially here in East Tennessee. You have to punish these businesses and organizations right on the money. You've seen this happen this year with Target, and Bud Light, and some others. If you want to combat NASCAR's wokeness and their DEI initiatives, don't reward them with your eyeballs by watching these races. Don't go to the races. Demand that they stop with all of this racial discrimination or else you won't be supporting them anymore. This resistance is why so many national corporations are, are finally backing off. They're taking the foot off of this woke gas pedal because they're bleeding money right and left. What regular humans want to see is equality, not equity. And we won't tolerate racism. We want to see people who can drive a car, drive a race car, regardless of their gender or skin color. So please, NASCAR, put the brakes on this moronic initiative, please. Now, Let's get to the local news feed. You probably need some roof repairs. 
If you feel that water dripping every time it rains or those shingles are starting to look bad, the sooner you act, the better. So call my friends over at Turner Exteriors for an estimate on your roof today. If you tell them Blake sent you, they'll give you $500 off your new roof. I know the guys and gals over at Turner Exteriors. They do great work and I promise you'll love the new life they bring to your home. Our local segment a few weeks ago covered the Knoxville primary elections for Knoxville mayor, three city council seats, and a municipal judgeship. Now, that was during the early voting period, but Knoxville is one of the, the strange places where if you get 50% of the vote plus one, you win the election, even prior to the general. Uh, if you don't reach that threshold, the primary decides who goes to the general election in November. Now, although Knoxville is home to over 100,000 100, eligible voters, only about 16,000 participated in the primaries. Now, I know that there is always lower turnout in primary elections, but 16% seems incredibly low. And, and because of Knoxville's election rules, one of these elections was already, already decided. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but because of these rules, more people should participate, but they don't. So I'm gonna share with you today what the results uh, were from the election that happened last Tuesday. The primaries are officially over, they happened. Uh, the general election is coming up in November, on November 7th. But let's start with Knoxville mayor. Uh, the candidates were India Kincannon, she's the incumbent mayor. Uh, Jeff Tallman was another candidate, Constance M. Every, and R.C. Lawhorn. That, that's who you could vote on. Our choice was Jeff Tallman. He was the most conservative candidate on the list. Uh, Constance M. Every was by far the most extreme, uh, liberal, woke candidate on the list. Um, India Kincannon, and this is usually what happens with incumbents, um, in, in smaller elections like city elections, um, the incumbent usually wins because it's the name that people recognize. Most people going into the booth don't even really know who they're voting for. Um, so India Kincannon was the winner. She wins the election. It's not even going to go to the general uh, because she won 9,429 votes. Just by comparison, Jeff Tallman, who we recommended, he only got about half of what she got, 4,808 votes. So I hate to see uh, Jeff Tallman lose, but Knoxville gets another um, term from India Kincannon as mayor. Now, the next thing was city council seat A. Uh, the recommendation that we made in that election was Darren Warsham. Darren Warsham was... Um, the person that, that obviously had had the most real-world experience, the, the most conservative, um, we discouraged you from uh, voting for Lynn Fugate or Cameron Brooks. Now, Lynn Fugate is the incumbent there. Uh, the, the crazy thing is, is that Cameron Brooks, um, he, he got the second most votes in, in this uh, primary election but he died right before the primary date happened. Now, this is what Knox News reports about Cameron Brooks. 
like I said, Democratic Party organizer, leader, and Knoxville City Council candidate Cameron Brooks has died of complications related to his treatment for cancer. Brooks previously served as the chairman of the Knox County Democratic Party and served as a Knox County election commissioner. In mid-August, he announced he had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. While his campaigning slowed, he remained on the ballot, facing incumbent councilperson Lynn Fugate and fellow challenger Darren Warsham. Of course, Darren Warsham is who we recommended. He was the, the candidate with, with like 50 years of welding experience. That just sounded amazing to me. But Cameron Brooks, 45, he worked as a real estate agent. He cared deeply about local elections and was an avid animal advocate. Now, this next part of the article is going to show you that Cameron was in a gay marriage. Um, his husband is, is quoted here in saying, Cameron crossed the Rainbow Bridge shortly before 1 a.m. Uh, to round up our beloved four-leggers before continuing on. Brooks' husband, Wes Knott, wrote on Facebook. A statement from his campaign said he developed advanced sepsis during his first cancer treatment, um, and at that point, the funeral arrangements were pending. Um, but in the primary, he finished uh, three points behind Fugate in the August 29th primary. He was set to challenge her in November's general election. Now, his name will not be on the November ballot. So the question was, does that mean that it'll be uh, Fugate's name on the, on the ballot along with um, Darren Worsham? And the answer is no. It'll just be Lynn Fugate's name on that ballot. Uh, so basically, she's the winner. She just hasn't been declared that because people will have to show up in November to vote for her. But Lynn Fugate will retain her seat on the city council, which is unfortunate. The second uh, city council seat that was up for election, seat B, there were only two options there, um, but neither candidate got the 50% plus one um, votes that they needed to, to win the election overall. Um, Debbie uh, Helsley, she was the one that got the most votes. She got 10,000 uh, plus votes. So she will move on to the general election with R. Bentley Marlowe. That's who we recommended. Um, they only got 4,594 votes. So hopefully they will do some better campaigning and get the word out better before November to hopefully win that seat. Now, the final city council seat that we talked about was seat C. Um, there was an incumbent in that race, Amelia Parker, um, the, the candidate that we recommended was Tim Hill. Tim Hill seemed like a great candidate for that spot. Um, Matthew Best was the other one there. We did not recommend him. Um, Amelia Parker and Tim Hill will both move on to the general election in November. And this race was pretty dang close. Amelia Parker got 6,598 votes. Tim Hill was just uh, 600 votes behind her with... 5,927 votes. So that was a pretty close race. That, that tells me that um, it could be anybody's race in November. So that's good news there. Hopefully Tim Hill will pull that one out in November. And last but not least, um, the municipal judgeship that people were voting on, uh, 
a few weeks ago when we talked about this, I mentioned the fact that Judge Rawson, who had, who has been on that seat for 36 years, um, surely had this in the bag. Uh, because, again, he's got the name recognition. He's been around for over three decades in that position, and he's the incumbent. Uh, most of the time, the incumbent is who wins. But this, in, in, in a shocking turnout in these primaries, uh, Tyler M. Cavanis. We didn't even talk about the other candidates, but Tyler M. Cavanis, which we'll talk about uh, him more later on, but he was only 200 votes behind Judge Rawson. Judge Rawson almost got uh, defeated in the primary. Of course, both Judge Rawson and Tyler M. Cavanis are going to move on to the general election in November. Um, but we will talk about both of those candidates more then. So there was a couple interesting turnouts. There was uh, obviously some unfortunate things that took place. Um, obviously, we feel sorry for uh, the loss of life in, in regard to Cameron Brooks. Um, we hate that Lynn Fugate is retaining her job and even in India Kincannon uh, because we want as many conservatives as possible sitting on our city council. But that's how the primaries turned out in Knoxville, and we'll talk more about these candidates as we get closer to November 7th. Well, that's going to do it for me. What'll it be next time? We'll see. For now, go and be the salt and light you were meant to be, and we'll see you next time on We The Free.